The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. By way of announcement, don't forget there is a congregational meeting after the uh, Sunday morning service on the 26th. There's also, we still have a sign-up sheet out front for those who want to be notified. If there is a change of schedule at the last minute, those of you who don't want to be notified will just enjoy the opportunity to spend extra time in Houston traffic. All right, well, before we get started in our study of Hebrews this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you that we can come together to worship you through the teaching of your word, that there's no higher form of worship than to take the time out of our busy schedules to sit quietly and learn your word, learn what you have to say to us as God the Holy Spirit has worked to reveal these things to us, to inscripturate them through the writers of Scripture and to preserve them down through the ages that we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and He is the one who teaches us and stores these things in memory so that we can recall them in time of application. Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Hebrews, that you would challenge us with these vital truths that are just as relevant and important for us today as they were to these first-century Jewish former priest believers who were uh, wrestling with the uh, truths of their new uh, found faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and its implications for their spiritual life. We pray that we might be challenged to press on and not to fall by the wayside. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, the focus of these first ten verses that we began last time is on the superiority of Christ's priesthood that just as the Human priesthood under the Mosaic law, the Aaronic high priesthood, was a priesthood that was held by a man on behalf of other men, but his office was held at the authorization of God. In that same way, Christ, as a man, represents other men, and his position as a priest was a result of God's appointment. That's the thrust of these verses. Just as God appointed Old Testament priests, so God appointed Jesus Christ. It was not a matter of self-glorification, but a matter of appointment under the authority of God within the framework of God's plan for human history, and it has implications not only for you and me as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today in the church age, but also in terms of our future uh, destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ as kings and priests, as emphasized in uh, the book of Revelation. Now, the thrust of these first three verses is on the fact that every high priest is appointed by God, general principle, that every high priest, that is in reference to the Old Testament, every high priest was appointed by God, and we covered that last time. And there were certain purposes for that 
for that priesthood. And this is defined in both verse 5 and verse, I mean, excuse me, verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 5. That every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things related to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's offerings in reference to free will offerings, various offerings outlined under the Mosaic Covenant. And sacrifices for sin should be taken as one phrase that that relates, of course, to the burnt offerings, the guilt offerings, trespass offerings, the uh, offerings related to the Day of Atonement. These were all different sacrifices, blood sacrifices that foreshadowed the substitutionary spiritual atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. And last time we spent the time looking at the background for this, the Aaronic priesthood, and what is taught about that in the Old Testament to give you background, because the uh, undergirding argument that runs from chapter 5 through chapter 8 is the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over that of the Aaronic priesthood. Now, why is he arguing that? I mean, we we sit here as Gentiles 1,900 years later saying, okay, why is that significant? Well, it was significant to them because they were former Jewish priests saved out of a Levitical system. That was their frame of reference, and they had apparently left Judaism and were in a Christian community of some sort. We don't know what. There's a lot of questions that we have on just exactly who these individuals were. But they were coming under different kinds of pressure, persecution, adversity, rejection from the Jewish, their Jewish relatives, those who were still serving as priests. And because of that pressure, they were on the verge of just giving up this new faith in Christ and going back under the Mosaic system. And that is why the writer of Hebrews is challenging them not to uh, fall by the wayside, not to drift away, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, but to press on. As part of his rationale that he builds to encourage them, challenge them from doctrine, is to... uh, emphasize the superiority of the new priesthood of Jesus Christ, that this is superior to that of the temporary priesthood that was defined in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament. Now, to do that, he builds a case. He does this through, through Old Testament uh, Scripture references. He does it by uh, analyzing the uh, institution of the priesthood under the Mosaic Law. So last time we looked at that, uh, background of the Levitical priesthood, and we noted several things. I'm not going to go through every point I went through last time, but we noted that there are three priesthoods in the Old Testament. There was a patriarchal priesthood that came into existence after Adam sinned, and it was established. We know that Abel offered sacrifices for himself. Noah offered sacrifices for the family. Abraham offered sacrifices. Isaac offered sacrifices for the family. This was a patriarchal priesthood that was based on the leadership of the father over the family. And in some cases, if it was an individual, they could offer sacrifices 
for themselves. Then the second priesthood was the Melchizedekian priesthood, and both the patriarchal priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood were based upon regeneration. They were, uh, they were believers. The Melchizedekian priesthood was a royal priest. Melchizedek was a Gentile. His priesthood was royalty. He was the king of Salem, the town Salem later became Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is the royal high priest in in Jerusalem. As a Gentile, that priesthood applies to all people, not just Jews. Then under the Mosaic Law, God instituted a temporary priesthood based on genetics, based on their relationship to Levi in the uh, in the uh, uh, one of the twelve tri- tribes of Israel. So the priesthood is based on the priesthood in general is based on Levitical uh, descent. The high priesthood is based on descent from Aaron, who is Moses' older brother. Moses was appointed by God to be the high priest in Exodus chapter 28, and that the priesthood would pass down through his uh, children. And that goes down even to, and will be the case even in the millennial kingdom, that the Zadokite priesthood, uh, the descendants of Zadok are those that uh, follow David, and the Zadokite priesthood is a descendant from the uh, priesthood of Aaron. So the, we saw those three, high, those three priesthoods are functional in the Old Testament. The one that is under examination here is the Aaronic priesthood, the Aaronic high priesthood. And the contrast is, is that these men were used to the Mosaic system based on the Levitical offerings, the Mosaic law. It was a temporary priesthood, but Christ's priesthood is superior because it follows the order of Melchizedek. We also looked at the role of the priest, that the priest had a role to serve in the temple, the tabernacle, later the temple, to oversee the sacrifices and offerings, Deuteronomy 18.5, to pray for the nation, Joel 2.17, to teach the law to the people, Leviticus 10, verse 11, and Malachi 2, verse 7, and to be an example of personal spiritual growth, Deuteronomy 33.9. We also looked at the uh, anointing of the priest at his, the beginning of his or the initiation of his uh, responsibilities as well as uh, the, some of the instances related to the rebellion against Aaron's priesthood. We'll come back and look at that uh, some again this evening just by way of review. So three things that we learn from verse 1. First of all, a priest is appointed by God. A priest is appointed by God. He is not self-appointed. Second, a priest represents man to God. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men or in behalf of men and is a substitute for man, the preposition hupere plus the genitive, as a substitute for man in things... Uh, related to God. So a priest is appointed, point one. Point two, a priest represents man to God. And point three, a priest offers gifts and sacrifices for sins to God for the individual. That is the thrust of verse one. Then we have the purpose given in the opening part of verse two. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, verse two probably stands as a separate sentence. And it starts off in the 
in the uh, New King James, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. But that's not how it reads in the original. It begins in the original with a present active infinitive of the Greek verb uh, metriopatheo, metriopatheo, which is an infinitive of purpose here. And so this indicates a purpose for the operation of the priesthood is in order that he uh, would have compassion on those who are ignorant. It emphasizes uh, that one has, uh, it moderates one's feelings. It has the idea of dealing gently with somebody, to bear reasonably with somebody, to exercise moderation towards someone in relation to their emotions and passions. So the idea here is that the priest is not the one who's going to come along and be judgmental. An individual comes, brings his sacrifice, he's going to uh, admit his sins when he lays his hands on the on the goat. And for example, in the uh, scapegoat offering, he's going to rehearse his sins. The priest is going to hear that. The priest is not going to act shocked. The priest is not going to uh, judge him. This is a matter between the individual and the Lord. And so the priest is one who can have compassion or understanding on those who are, and then we have two words that come up, ignorant and led astray. And this really relates to two different kinds of sins that are indicated in the, in the Old Testament. The first is a sin of ignorance. It's not that these are ignorant people. It's that they have committed a sin and they are not aware of the fact that this is a sin. Uh, many times we may commit certain acts that we may, may or may not that know that we are committing a sin. We may not know that it's a sin. And then at other times we just commit sins that are right in the middle of an entire chain of sins and we don't even realize we committed that sin. You know, we're out there and we're, we're gossiping or slandering character assassination and right in the middle was some blasphemy and we didn't even recognize that. So we all do that. We get involved in a whole string of of sins at times, and rather than uh, conf- have to confess every one of them, First John one nine says that when we confess those sins that we know, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, the known and the unknown sins. So this word here in the Greek, it's agnoeo. The a at the beginning serves like a the un preposition or prefix, the un prefix in English. It negates the word, and then noeo is from a root like gnosis, uh, epinosis. It's that word for knowledge. So it indicates ignorance, to be uninformed, to not know something, to not be aware of the fact that something was a sin. So there's one class of sin that comes under uh, unknown sins, or they are not willful sins. And then the second class is defined by the verb planao to be misled, to be deceived, to go, uh, to cause something to go astray, someone to go astray in a specific way or from a specific way. This indicates a known or willful path of sin. So it covers both. It covers your unknown sins, your known sins, your sins of ignorance, your sins of cognizance. And so the 
It is the role of the priest to be understanding on those who have committed known sins and, the, and are, excuse me, those who have committed unknown sins and those who have committed willful sins, since he himself is also subject to weakness in his humanity. He is surrounded by weakness. This is the word, uh, the verb perikeme, which indicates that he is surrounded by weakness. This is the last word there, asthenea. This is an interesting word. I always have fun with this one. The A at the beginning, again, is that same alpha prefix that indicates a negation. And the word stenea is the word for strength. So literally it means without strength. Now the word means, can refer to physical, lack of physical strength in the sense of illness or weakness, being crippled, any, anything like that. This is how it's used most of the time in the Gospels. However, we, there's one sentence, statement where Jesus says that the uh, uh, spirit is felt willing, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And there it's talking about a spiritual weakness or spiritual inability. And about 75% of the times in the Gospels, that word is used to refer to physical sickness. And that's usually the word that you find when it talks about this, those who were sick came to Jesus and were healed. Then when you get into the epistles, this percentage does a flip-flop. And about 75-80% of the time in the epistles, the word refers to a spiritual weakness, a spiritual inability. And it's rarely used to refer to a physical illness. This is the same word that's used in that passage in James chapter 5 that everybody gets all uh, curious about when it talks about if any of you are sick, let him call for the elders and let him, uh, let him come and, and, and anoint him with oil and pray over him and he will be healed. And everybody thinks that that has something to do with physical healing. But it doesn't have anything to do with physical healing. The word there is, that is used is asthenes, and that refers to a spiritual weakness, which is exactly what the whole book of James is talking about, to persevere in times of testing. So that doesn't have anything to do with being sick. It doesn't fit the category of a, of a health test. It's that if any of you are spiritually falling apart, call for mature believers to pray for them. And it emphasizes that uh, uh, aspect of prayer, there are synonyms that are used in the passage for uh, that are also translated sickness, but they don't have anything to do with sickness. They have to do with weakness. And so that's the meaning of that passage in case uh, that ever comes up. It doesn't have anything to do with, with physical sickness. One of the hardest things that young pastors have to deal with, old pastors do too, let me say new pastors have to deal with it with the congregation that is not very well taught is to be in a situation like I found myself in when I was first went to Irving about 20 years ago to pastor a church and I was going back to Dallas to work on my doctorate and about uh, a month after I arrived and of course I hadn't had time to lay much groundwork or deal with anything there was a young woman in the congregation who was pregnant and she started to miscarry, and she and her husband went to the went to the hospital. Now there was an interesting backstory on this. I really didn't know this lady, but she was about four or five years younger than me, and had grown up at Camp Isle. And uh, 
Her father was a well-known Sunday school teacher at Bethel Presbyterian here in Houston. And uh, her husband was well-known because when he was at Baylor, he was feeding, uh, he was like a spy feeding inside information on the liberals at Baylor to uh, Paul, uh, uh, Paul Pressler and some of the others who were leading the conservative side of the uh, Baptist uh, uh, resurgence of the uh, orthodox view of inerrancy and infallibility. So they were a nice couple, but they had some funny ideas. And I showed they they called for me, called me, and they said, "I want to know if I'd come down to the hospital and pray with them." And I did, and I showed up, and there were two other men from the church there, and they had a bottle of Wesson oil, you know, time to anoint with oil and pray for the sick. Well, that is, when a woman's about to have a miscarriage, this is not the opportunity to take to teach them a little doctrine. Trust me. That comes with experience as a pastor. You anoint them with oil, you pray, and you wait until a more opportune time to straighten them out, And uh, which is what I did. I had been a pastor long enough at that point to realize that there's, there's times when you just suck it up and go with the flow and because otherwise all you're going to do is create trauma. But that's just, you know, everybody gets messed up with English translations at times because they, they've always been translated a certain way. Most people don't realize this, that Bible translations are a money-making business. Now, most of us don't ever think about it that way, but it is. I mean, the number one bestseller is the Bible. And why do you think there are so many different translations coming out? I know of two more translations that are going to come out this year. It is a money-making business. But they learned, at least the conservative evangelicals learned back in the 50s, that if you don't translate certain verses the way they've always been translated then some radical fundy is going to accuse you of liberal heresy and your Bible won't sell. And that's what happened with the RSV when they didn't translate uh, Isaiah uh, 9-6 with virgin. They translated it with a young woman. Ooh, the conservatives just hit the ceiling over that. And the sales fell off. So Bible publishers learned back then that you don't change things up too much, especially in well-known, familiar verses, because... People won't buy the translation. So some of these verses just don't change a whole lot, even though we have uh, superior knowledge of the Greek and uh, theology, background studies, and other things, simply because uh, they don't want to lose money on their, on their investment. Sad when it comes down to business. Well, this use of the word asthenia is not talking about physical sickness. It's talking about a spiritual uh, weakness and the priest is a fallen human being just like the fallen human beings that come to him and he shows a compassion and an understanding for them rather than a self-righteous judgmental attitude and he is the one who represents them before God as he brings sacrifices for sins to God with reference to their sin so verse 2 in order to have compassion on those who are sinning out of ignorance and out of willfulness, since he himself is also subject to spiritual weakness and failure. 
verse 3. Because of this, that is, because of this reason that he is uh, from among the people and has uh, spiritual weakness, because of this he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. He has, the, the human priest has to offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as for the sins of those who come to him because he's just as much a fallen sinner as they are. And we get an example of this in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 6. So turn with me in your Bible back to Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to spend a little more time looking at the background to the priesthood in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, we have the initiation of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the one time a year when the high priest would go into the inner Holy of Holies behind the veil and, and put an, the, the blood on the mercy seat, which pictured the uh, propitiatory sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I always have fun on, on Thursday night when we have our Hebrews class because I get to tell stories on my Thursday morning class at College of Biblical Studies. We all learned a new word today. I think there were three people in the class who had heard the word propitiation before. So I, I, I like to bring those things in there because I want you all to, to recognize that the vast majority of believers out there are pretty biblically illiterate, and it's just getting worse. And I'm not meaning that, and I'm not talking down on that, that group. I mean, they're there at the college because they realize they don't know anything about the Bible, and they need to learn something about the Bible. And that's why they're there. And I made the point today, I, I try not to be too heavy-handed on this, and I, I hadn't said this before with this class, but I said it this morning. I said, now, just a, just a little thought moment here. If you're here at the College of Biblical Studies because you're not learning the Bible at your local church from your pastor, then perhaps using that time-honored Texas idiom of a double subjunctive, you might ought to think about going to a church where somebody teaches you the Bible. I saw about three light bulbs go off today. It's just amazing that folks don't think about this. I say, you know, if you're not, when was the last time, although there were five people who said they had actually heard a sermon on propitiation, and I was pleased to hear that. But that meant there were 11 people who had never heard a message on propitiation. So we learned a new word today because we were going through Exodus, and, of course, I got into the uh, basics of, of the uh, art of the furniture in the tabernacle as we went through there. Chapter 16. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered uh, profane fire before the Lord and died. Now that is a reference to what happens in Leviticus chapter 10. So just so we have a little background on this, let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 10. Just keep your place there in chapter 16. Because all that goes on between 10 and 16 is, is instructional. It's important for us to go back to see what happens in chapter 10 because 
All of this relates to the principle that the writer of Hebrews is establishing in these first four verses that the priest is appointed by God. Nobody else has the right to appoint a priest. Nobody can be self-appointed as the high priest. God is the one who determines who the high priest is. And this goes back to that wonderful principle of exclusivity that we find in the scripture that unbelievers hate. And that is that there's only one way to God, and he's the one who defines what that way is. There was only one way on the ark, and uh, that was through the door. There was only one way to survive the flood, and that was on the ark. There was only one way into the presence of God in the tabernacle. You had to go through the gate. And to go through the gate, the first thing that had to happen was there had to be a sacrifice on the brazen altar. You can't come into the presence of God unless you do it on the basis of his rules. And there, first of all, has to be a blood sacrifice. Then after that, there was the uh, labor, and there has to be cleansing from sin before the priest can go into the presence of God. Now, Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Ithamar, and Eleazar. And Nadab and Abihu are as rebellious as the rest of the Exodus generation. And I think that was one of the key points God was demonstrating with this Exodus generation, was that he was demonstrating his grace in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. But he was demonstrating the horrible consequences of rebellion and they were the generation to exemplify rebellion they were the poster children of rebellion and I think that if you think about the plan of God just as as Galatians 4 4 says that it was that, that Jesus came in the fullness of times I think that God waited to this particular generation to deliver them from slavery in Egypt God's a multitasker and part of what he was doing is he was bringing them back. They were now large enough to bring them back to, to the land. But he chose this generation because he knew that they were so rebellious. And he didn't start with their children who were not rebellious, but with them to demonstrate first his grace to a rebellious generation. And, he, and so often we learn, I do, you all probably don't, but I learn by making mistakes more than I learn by doing it right. And I think most of us are probably that way. We, after we've screwed up about 20 times, or 20,000 times, then we finally figure out what, what, why, why this is important, why God said to do it a certain way. And, and the basic issue in the whole angelic conflict is authority orientation. And this is why the scriptures make such an issue out of orientation to authority, is that was the original sin of Satan. It was arrogance, but it was directed in the rejection of God's authority. So Nadab and Abihu decide they're going to enter into the presence of God on their own terms. Again, it just shows that God is the one who defines the terms. So they put fire in their, in their censers, put incense on it, and they go into offer profane fire before the Lord on the altar of incense in the holy place, which he had not commanded them. Result, divine judgment. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now here's Aaron. Now if you're a parent, put yourself in Aaron's place. Aaron has just lost two of his sons. 
what is God's instruction. He says, this is what the Lord, and Moses comes to Aaron and says, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. See, Aaron's reaction as a human being and as a father would be uh, anger, resentment, grief, and the overt expression of that. But God says, you can't do that. Because the issue is a higher issue. They were violating God's holiness. And I want you to pay attention to this statement that Moses makes in verse 3. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as what? Holy. Now, we've studied this word before, and some of you may need to be reminded, that the word holy does not mean morally pure. That's what most people think of holy. Holiness is one of those one of those words that's overused in Christian vocabulary. Most people don't know what it means. It's based on the Hebrew word kadash, which means to be set apart. That's the main idea. When it's applied to God, the root idea is to be unique. And I think more and more that that distinction of God, the, the uniqueness of God, relates to the fact that he's the creator. This is reinforcing the creator-creature distinction. God is totally different. God is the creator. We're the creature. He is unique. He is distinct. He must be treated that way. Now, one of the things that makes him distinct and unique is his holiness, I mean, is his righteousness and his justice. So that's how righteousness and justice uh, play in as a secondary idea to the main idea of, of being set apart. But because we are called to serve him as believers, we must align ourselves with his holiness. We cannot treat that lightly. He is totally distinct, and we must not treat him in a profane, light, or unworthy manner. That's really what it meant in the Mosaic Law, not to take the Lord's name in vain. It doesn't have the idea of fixing the, the name God or Jesus before a, uh, a statement of profanity. It means to take his name or to use it in a light manner. People who say praise Jesus and hallelujah as just sort of an automatic response to everything without thinking about what those statements mean are taking the Lord's name in a light manner. You never thought about it that way before, did you? They are treating it in just as much a light manner with no real meaning as someone who uh, uses God or Jesus in, as a curse word. Now, Moses' statement here is those who come near me. Now, when do we come near God? Every time we pray as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, by those who come near me, I must be regarded or thought of as holy. As, and, and the word there for holy is related to our other word, sanctified. That is why when we begin with prayer, we always confess our sins. That is experiential cleansing or sanctification. Because we recognize we're coming into the presence of a righteous and just God, and there must be cleansing of sin before we do that. We don't come into God's presence just uh, after we've been running around in the yard, so to speak, and we're all all dirty with sin, like it doesn't matter. We must come to God the way he says we come to him and not treat him lightly. And this is what is pictured with Nadab and Abihu, and they want to come to God on their own terms. And the result was that God immediately uh, took them out. And so 
Now let's go back to chapter 16. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. See, this is really serious. You don't come to God on your terms. You come to God on his terms. He has the right to define how we come to him. No man can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You can't just come to God on the basis of your your sincerity, on the basis of uh, ritual that you engage in, on the basis of your own concept that, well, you know, I'm really a great and wonderful person, and I and I've given all this energy and effort to uh, religious observance. God ought to let me come into His presence just because I'm I'm a wonderful person, which is how most people want to. Uh, come into the presence of God. They never think of the fact that this is a God who is holy. Think about, let's just turn for a minute to Isaiah chapter 6. Sometimes I think it's good for us just to reflect upon the, the, the holiness of God and what that really means and how totally distinct and radically other God is in terms of his righteousness and justice. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah speaking, and he has a vision where he sees the Lord, or he is in, in, in some way transported before the very throne of God. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the emphasis here is on the holiness of God. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me! Isaiah just falls on his face. It's, it's like an automatic reaction. He is scared to death because he, he realizes how unworthy and unclean he is to be in the presence of God. And he screams out, Woe is me, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is his vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and it said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. What are we talking about here? This is cleansing. Confession of sin. Isaiah is already a believer. It's the fact that as believers, we can't come into the presence of God without cleansing because God is a holy God, and we have to take that seriously. And there's too many believers today who have so trivialized God in terms of the love of God and the friendship of Jesus, what a friend we have in Jesus, that while these things are true, it minimizes the significance of God in His holiness and His righteousness. And whenever we see someone in the Scriptures, like John, as we'll see Sunday morning in Revelation chapter 1, see the risen Lord Jesus Christ or 
uh, in his holiness or uh, the Lord Jesus Christ like Isaiah and Isaiah 6 they fall on their face they, it, it's, it's the light of the glory of God is, exposes our sin to the core of our being it's got to be a, a, a just an unnerving reality for someone to be in this kind of light because it's not it's it's a moral light it's not just a physical light and it exposes who we are and when and, and this is why people react to God so they don't want that they don't want to be exposed but that's what the word of God does and of course John says in John chapter 3 that men love the darkness rather than the light because the inclination of the sinful heart is that we don't want the exposure that comes from being in the presence of the light. Back to Leviticus chapter 16. There's only one way before God. And so Aaron has to come into the ark. And this whole passage here in chapter 16 leads up to the, and describes the operation on the Day of Atonement when the high priest goes in and presents this sacrifice for the nation. But what precedes the sacrifice for the nation is that he has to have a sacrifice for himself first. That's what Hebrews one, or Hebrews five, uh, three is talking about. That the priest is required to offer a sacrifice for his sins before he offers a sacrifice for the people, because he has to be he has to be cleansed. So God. Uh, instructs Moses that Aaron can't come inside the veil uh, except once a year. Thus, verse 3, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and as a ram as a burnt offering. A sin offering was offered for uh, unknown, unwilling sins, and a burnt offering was was a symbol of one's whole uh, presentation of himself to God in the sense that that, uh, he is presenting himself to the service of God. So the priest would come and offer a sin offering and a burnt offering for himself first. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash. Notice the detail here. He's got to get dressed a certain way. See, God's details on how you enter his presence extended in the Levitical system down to how the priest dressed. He had, to, he had to wear his priestly garments and he had to put them on a certain way. And before he put them on, he had to make sure he took a full uh, bath. So he has to treat all of this with the honor and respect that it is due because it is all holy to the Lord. That was what was on the, um, on the plate, on the headdress that the high priest wore was holiness to the Lord. It's all about uh, holiness. In fact, that's the key word in the book of Leviticus is that man just can't come into the presence of God without there being a sacrifice. Verse 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. That comes first. Before he can function as a priest to the nation, he had to deal with his own spiritual condition. Now now we're going to get into some interesting fun stuff. This word atonement is always a sort of a 
difficult word for people to get a grasp of. It's an English word that is made up with the idea of at one bringing the bringing together of two uh, two opposing parties. And atonement means it was put together from those words at one So it has that idea of bringing things together. And for a long time, and you probably have been taught this. I used to teach this until I was until I did some recent study that the word for atonement in the Hebrew is the word kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R. And it was the idea of covering. Now, that was easy. When I was a Hebrew student first year memorizing vocabulary, kafar cover, that works. I can remember that. But recent studies in cognate languages, cognate languages are related languages to Hebrew, uh, just as you have Romance languages, Latin, French, Spanish, these are cognate languages. Many times, if you're a Spanish speaker, you can hear somebody in Italian and you can kind of work your way through what they might be saying. If you speak Arabic and you're listening to a Hebrew speaker, you can, you can pretty much figure out what they're, what they're saying. Uh, same thing with other ancient Near Eastern languages such as Ugaritic and Akkadian. So traditionally, the concept of atonement, because of the picture that you see with the Ark of the Covenant, is a covering for sin. Now let me remind you of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. It's a box. It was a wooden box that was covered with gold. That is a picture of the hypostatic union. The wood represented the humanity of Christ. The gold represented the deity of Christ. Inside the box were placed three things. The broken Ten Commandments which took place after Mount Sinai when they uh, rebelled against God and they had Aaron build, uh, make a uh, uh, golden calf. Manna and Aaron's rod that budded, which is covered, uh, we'll look at it in a minute, in uh, number 16. Both, All three of those things represented Israel's rejection of God's provision. They rejected his provision of the law. They rejected his provision of logistical grace in terms of the manna, and they rejected his leadership that he had selected, in ter- his spiritual leadership in terms of Aaron. And that's what, what the Aaron's rod represented. Now, on top of that box was, the, was placed the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat, we're all familiar with this, were the two cherubs looking down, as it were, on the sin of Israel. The high priest would come in on the Day of Atonement and he would place the blood from the sacrificed Passover lamb, or excuse me, the Day of Atonement lamb, and place it on the mercy seat. It covers the sin, as it were. Oh, that makes sense. But recent studies have indicated that the word kafar doesn't emphasize covering as much as it indicates cleansing. Now, Aaron is already saved. Aaron is already, in terms of his priestly typology, he's already redeemed. Okay, even if you had a priest that wasn't truly saved, the, the, the initiation into the role is a picture of that salvation. Remember, in the life of Israel, one thing that will always help you is to think of the history of Israel as a corporate people as a picture of what happens to the individual believer in the church age. For example, as a nation, they are called through Abraham. 
following the calling of Abraham, they are redeemed by the Passover lamb, pays the price of their sin. Then they're identified with Moses at the Red Sea, and then they go into the wilderness, into the wilderness of Sinai. They go to the, down to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law, which is the uh, protocol plan for the Old Testament believer. It is how the redeemed people are supposed to live. And so the rest of that comes, uh, the rest of the, the story from their wilderness wanderings, the conquest, judges, are, are really related to sanctification, experiential sanctification issues. As a nation, they're saved over here on Passover. That's why they don't get the law first and then get redeemed. They get redeemed first and then they get the law. The law tells them how a redeemed people that is adopted by God as a firstborn to be a kingdom of priests is supposed to live. So, in terms of the typology that the Holy Spirit is is presenting here, Aaron's already saved. The nation is already redeemed. The Day of Atonement doesn't have to do with justification, salvation. It has to do with post-salvation cleansing, year after year after year. Now, one of the interesting things that supports this is that when the Jewish rabbis translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek New Testament, uh, into the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. For the 70, the legend is that 70 rabbis translated the Pentateuch in 70 days. That would have been quite a feat. Uh, that when those Jewish rabbis translated that Hebrew Old Testament, and they translated that, that Hebrew word kafar into Greek, they used the Greek word katharizo most of the time. Now, the Greek verb katharizo, or katharos is the noun, Katharizo is the, the verb that's used in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It has to do with that ongoing cleansing from sin after salvation. So this is what's going on here, that every year there has to be this national cleansing of sin because as the writer of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats really can't take away sin it is an annual reminder that everybody in the nation is is a fallen sinner and there needs to be ongoing cleansing for sin so first Aaron has to go into the into the uh, tabernacle and he has to offer a bull as a sin offering and he has to make atonement for himself and for his house and then he takes, in verse 7, he takes two goats and presents them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle. And he casts lots for the two goats, one for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. So this is a picture of confession because he's going to lay his hands on both of these goats. He's going to confess sin. And one goat is going to go into the wilderness. One goat is going to be sacrificed. That's a pic- the sacrifice goat's a picture that sin is dealt with. The fact that the other goat goes into the wilderness is the fact that the sin is removed and it's no longer an issue. It goes off and it's, it's, on, it's, it's taken out of the camp. So chapter 16 in Leviticus goes on to deal with the whole uh, ceremony and ritual related to 
the uh, Day of Atonement, which is a picture of the of national uh, cleansing. Now, this ritual has tremendous reality. Why? Because as believers, they would understand what it pictured. Now, if you're not a believer, you don't understand what it pictures, so the ritual has no reality. So we have to be careful when we use phrases like, well, ritual with reality and ritual without reality, because all of the ritual in the Scripture had reality if you were a believer and you understand what it pictured. But if you weren't a believer, it didn't have any reality because you didn't understand the doctrines that were embedded there. Same thing with the Lord's table in the church age. If you're not a believer, you don't have an appreciation for what is going on in the Lord's table because you don't understand the person or the work of Jesus Christ and you haven't trusted Him as your Savior, so it is meaningless ritual. But if you understand the, the gospel message, you understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, then that ritual has reality. The same thing was true for baptism. Baptism was a ritual that had reality if you understood what it was a picture of, that it was a picture of the believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And if you don't understand that, then it's a ritual that doesn't have reality. But every now and then I hear people use that terminology very loosely. But the reason ritual has reality is because you know the doctrines that are pictured in the ritual. If, it, you, if you don't know those doctrines, it has no meaning. It's just going, you end up emphasizing the ritual as a means to gaining God's approbation. Now, last time we saw that Aaron's selected in Exodus chapter 28, and this time we looked at Leviticus 10, the, that there's this constant challenge to the exclusivity of of Aaron's appointment by God. And then in number 16, there's the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, where God, the, the Korah, Dathan, and Abiram want to set up an alternative priesthood, and there's 250 who follow them. And then God isolates them, once again demonstrating his exclusivity, demonstrating his righteousness and his justice. He isolates them. And they stand out. That must have been the most... Every time I read that, I think, what a scene this must have been. You just picture the fact that you've got a couple of million Jews in the wilderness. And then at this one area of the camp where you have a group of, of that want to set up their own alternate priesthood, and God announces that he is going to judge them, so everybody ought to back off. Now, with what they've seen so far, you would really think the Jews would understand what it meant to back off. And they do. They, they, they begin to back off. And Moses comes along, and Moses says, well, if this is true and they violated God's standard, then uh, the earth will swallow them up. If it's not true, they'll die just like a natural death just like anybody else. At that point, the earth rumbles. Uh, excuse me, let me back up. Before that, each of these men, Korah, Dathan, and Byram, and their families grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, children, infants, all stand out in front of their tents. It's like a procession. Everybody's standing there at morning roll call. Then Moses makes his announcement, and then the earth begins to rumble, and it just opens up and swallows them. Babies, grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, the whole clan 
of these three men just get swallowed into the earth and it closes up on them. Nothing left. And then stop there. And then fire from heaven comes. And what happens? God evaporates the 250 other men who, want, who are following them in their rebellion. So you get the impression that God really doesn't like rebellion. And he has appointed Aaron to be the high priest. Now, you all got that message? I've got that message. What the, but the next day the Jews get up and they grumble and complain all over again. This must have been a really tough crowd to work. There, after all of that, they still grumble and complain about Aaron. And this is the background. This is when God told Aaron to take his staff, his wooden staff from a dead tree, and go put it into the tent of the meeting along with the others who wanted to compete for the role of high priest. And God would perform a miracle, and the dead wooden staff of the one God chose would sprout green uh, leaves and uh, branches and it would start to grow again and that's what happened to Aaron's rod so when we talk about Aaron's rod that budded that's what we're talking about and it symbolizes their rejection of God's appointment of Aaron as a priest so we see all of this in the background to those first uh, four verses in Hebrews 5 and concluding in Hebrews 4 And no man takes this honor to himself. That's what was happening with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. That's what was happening with Nadab and Abihu. They wanted to take that honor for themselves. They wanted to make themselves a priest because they didn't understand that to function as a priest you had to be appointed by God. It was not something that was generated by the individual. They have to be called by God just as Aaron was. Now that sets up the analogy. The rest of these verses from verse 5 down to verse 10 apply that analogy to the appointment of the Lord Jesus Christ to his position as the royal high priest for all eternity. So the key idea is only God has the right to appoint a high priest. He defines the terms on how we come before Him. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank You for what we've studied this evening to be have our faith, our trust in You reinforced, have our understanding of basic fundamental doctrines related to propitiation, cleansing, post-salvation cleansing, all reinforced by these images that You established in the Old Testament in the priesthood that were designed to picture for us in very visual ways the uh, eternal realities that uh, are part of our spiritual life. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we have studied this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.